Welcome to Drilling Deep, the Freightways Freightcast, where we talk about that which needs to be drilled for, oil and the products that come out of oil. I'm your host, John Kingston. Here on Drilling Deep, we talk about energy issues relevant to the trucking and transport sector, but we also talk about a transportation issue of the day. This week, I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Mark Solomon, who's been following the travails of the U.S. Postal Service for a long time. That kind of experience is really going to come in handy this year when this issue is going to get to be even more pointed than usual. Mark's going to be with us in a few moments. Let's bring everybody up to date on diesel and whether there's any sign of strength that could spoil this Goldilocks market where you've got rising freight rates, rising driver pay in a lot of cases, and diesel prices that are flat. Since the last DOD diesel price of June, the last one that they posted for their weekly uh, summary or their weekly survey of the market, the price has gone up a bit, gone down a bit, and most recently stood at $2.42 and eight-tenths of a cent. That's all of two-tenths of a cent down from that end June price. That's all it's moved. So yes, the price of diesel is mostly dictated by the price of crude. But that doesn't mean we can't look at other signals to get a sense of whether the price of diesel is going to rise faster than the price of crude or fall harder than the price of crude. A perfect example of this occurred in the spring when diesel prices were held up by the stampede of trucks filling shells with toilet paper and paper towels while the price of crude plummeted toward $10 a barrel. But those days are over. What that led to were refineries making lots and lots of diesel, which really couldn't be justified by the demand, or making more diesel because they didn't want to make jet fuel where demand had completely collapsed. The result was the price of diesel started to sag relative to crude. So what I want to talk about today is that nothing really has changed, but let's do look at one barometer because I think it's important. Diesel prices get to where they are first on the basis of where diesel is traded on the CME Commodity Exchange. Then in key physical markets, there is physical trade of diesel done as a differential to that CME price. So you would trade diesel in the Gulf Coast at, let's say, three cents below the CME price. That is the place to look to determine if the physical diesel market is getting stronger or weaker. For months now, it has been signaling weakness. That really isn't surprising given that inventory levels of diesel and other distillates in the U.S. relative to demand are some of the highest in history. They started moving down a bit last week, but still one easy way of measuring them is taking inventories, total U.S. inventories, dividing that by estimated daily demand and seeing how many days worth of consumption can be covered by stocks. For weeks, that number has been more than 50 days. That's been for the longest period in the history of the data series to see that number above 50. It just dropped under 50 days in the most recent report. But still, let's look at some of the most, some of the physical diesel markets. Here at Freight Waves, we do have physical market data from Platts, which is the world uh, leading source of information on physical markets. So we've taken those prices and we've converted everything into dollars per barrel to get a spread. On April 7th, a barrel of ultra-low sulfur diesel in New York Harbor was about $20 per barrel more than the price of a barrel of Brent crude, which is the world's benchmark crude grade. The other day, that number was down to $6.50 per barrel. It's been down toward those levels for quite some time now. It's that sort of shift, which is why crude, up until recently, has been moving gradually higher while the price of diesel has not. Those same sort of numbers can be found not just in the Gulf Coast. They can be found in the Gulf Coast and other parts of the country, including the Midwest and on the West Coast. So as I mentioned, inventories did tighten up a bit in the most recent report, 
and output of distillates, including diesel, did drop slightly. So it's entirely possible that I'm spreading this news about the weak diesel market just as, just as it makes a turn. But this isn't a forecast. It's just laying out the structural setup of the diesel market. And right now, all signs point to continuing weakness. And now on Drilling Deep, as we do, we are going to turn our attention to something else other than oil and diesel. We're going to speak to Mark Solomon. Mark is a senior editor at Freeways, my colleague, and Mark knows everything there is to know about Parcel and Final Mile and also the U.S. Postal Service. And, of course, the USPS is very much in the news these days, and I very much wanted to bring Mark on to talk about it. So, Mark, welcome back to Drilling Deep. Uh, you were a guest, one of my first guests in the first few months we did the show. Glad to be back, John. So, you know, there, there is so much focus in the parcel world on Amazon, on UPS, on FedEx, but the reality is that the U.S. Postal Service is a huge player in making the parcel world run. But like so many things in our country today, the politics are creeping in, uh, both because of the specter of the USPS being persona non grata in the Trump administration, I think largely to some degree because of strong links between Amazon and the, the Postal Service and the administration's clear uh, dislike of Amazon. And then, of course, you've got the whole issue of voting by mail. So uh, let's give some numbers to start things off. The Postal Service has more than 600,000 employees and more than $70 billion in annual revenues and a whole lot of losses. So, Mark, let's talk a little bit about Louis DeJoy. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He's the new head of the Postal Service. Uh, he's made the types of changes that in the private sector might be viewed as a necessary shakeup. But in today's hyperpolitical world, they're being seen as being driven by an agenda. What is your take on him? And do you buy into any of the conspiracy theories behind him? Or is he just being a, a really disruptive CEO that is disrupting something that needs to be disrupted? Well, I believe he is a disruptive CEO. Um, he comes out of the logistics industry. He was CEO of a excuse me, a company called New Breed Logistics, which was acquired by XPO Logistics in 2014. So he certainly understands how things get moved. The Postal Service, though, is a different animal. Um, it is a, um, calls itself a quasi-public sector organization. And while it does not depend on uh, public revenues to operate, it is beholden to the government and to its people. It is not a private sector organization in how we know it. Um, does the Postal Service need revamping when it comes to parcels? Uh, sure, I believe it is a, um, there's a lot of potential there that has been untapped. Uh, DeJoy does understand, as I said, how goods move. Um, but as I said, USPS is not your typical organization. And uh, the, as far as the conspiracy theories go, uh, DeJoy announced a massive reorganization uh, several days ago. And, you know, I, in the middle of a pandemic with a general election less than 90 days away with concerns being voiced by President Trump about the accuracy 
and the integrity of mail-in voting. It seems unusual that the Postal Service would time a major reorganization for now. It's something they could have done early next year. It wouldn't have changed anything. Why it's being done now is a question that only the Postmaster General, perhaps, and maybe his direct superior or superiors will answer. Um, the Postal Service has argued that, that these changes will make it a more effective and efficient um, organization. That may be. But the timing of this seems curious. Yeah, when you, when you do an overhaul at a company with the aim of greater efficiency, it happens. Okay, but it doesn't happen right away, and there tends to be a lot of chaos at first. And that's that's one of the issues is, um, you know, this is not an, a nimble organization. It's never been structured to be that. Uh, it's a big ship to turn. And to implement these changes now uh, is something, and as you said, could lead to some short-term disruptions. Well, in the short term, we have a pandemic and we have a general election with an incumbent who does not favor mail-in balloting. So uh, could this have been implemented in January or February 2021? More than likely. Well, let's talk about a couple of relevant things about the post service, Postal Service. Number one, on the bottom line, it loses a lot of money. I think the losses this year are projected to be $9 billion. Number two, it is positive free cash flow, if I'm not correct, or it has been. I'm not sure if it still is. Mm-hmm. And the only way it's going to be positive free cash flow at this point in the, uh, in the world is because of parcel, I'm assuming. And uh, number three, they have to pre-fund their retirement obligations. Is it 50 years or 70 years? Whatever it is, it, it, yeah, it is an obligation that no private company in America that has a pension fund, that, that has a pension obligation does. There aren't even any government, any other government entities which you know, still have fairly nice pensions for their workers who pre-fund it by 50 years. You're... Uh... You're accurate, other than the, the time frame. It's actually 75. 75 years. Uh, okay. So even more, even more of a burden. Right. Uh, what many people don't know is prior to the pandemic reaching U.S. shores, the House of Representatives voted, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, decisively to end the prefunding requirement. Um, unfortunately, that measure was overtaken by events. It never got to the Senate, or if it did, it never was voted on, and it still sits there. Um, The post office needs to get that boulder off its back, and um, if it does, it will dramatically improve their finances. There are operational competitive issues, though, that the elimination of the prefunding requirement will not solve. And that's the effort by the, the top players in parcel that use the postal service, their biggest customers to remove last mile from the postal service and bring that business in house. That's the 800 pound gorilla in the room for the post office over the next five to 10 years that DeJoy is going to have to deal with. 
Right. And the, and the term, the term that is used is postal injection, I guess. And what it means is that a company like FedEx or UPS will take care of the parcels up to the point where they give it to the postal service right. and make that last delivery because they've already got the network that's set up to make that last mile delivery. So I think what you're saying here is that those companies would rather not do postal injection, that this is one of these areas where it's easier to build rather than buy. And uh, that's a long-term concern. Well, I think they want to do postal injection selectively. They would gladly give the Postal Service the less densely populated suburban and rural areas because the Postal Service is required by law to serve every address in America. Uh, The Postal Service wants to keep the densely populated urban uh, areas for delivery, but that's the business that FedEx and Amazon will take away from them. Now, UPS has been more of a partner with the Postal Service, but all three have developed technologies, uh, route optimization technologies that allow those shipments, shipments that would normally move on Postal Service trucks to be merged into routes operated by FedEx, UPS, and Amazon. Uh, right. So, so, so let me take it to a very personal level. I mean, I live in a relatively dense suburb, about seven miles from the border between Nassau County and Queens and New York. Uh, this, and and when, we, when we get something delivered, which is almost every day, uh, <laughs> it seems to always come via FedEx, via an Amazon, maybe not an Amazon truck, but, you know, one of the, uh, the Amazon uh, contractors or a UPS truck. I just don't get that much from the postal, from the postal service. Is that because... I mean, the kind of area that uh, a FedEx or a UPS would find desirable to serve? Correct. That's possible. I'm not saying that's exactly the case with your geography, but... Right, but I mean, it would seem to be because, as I said, I mean, I'm in a, I'm in a relatively dense suburb. So as opposed to the kind of, um, you know, low exurb or rural areas that you're saying the Postal Service has to be there, Amazon would rather give it to, to them to take care of that. Correct. What is the next big crisis for the Postal Service? I keep hearing about, you know, some sort of late August, September, not a deadline, but um, something where uh, we're expecting another big brawl in Congress over it with the backdrop of the election. Well, the Postal Service operates along with the rest of the federal government on a fiscal year basis and their fiscal year ends September 30th. Uh, before she left the PMG job, Postmaster General, Megan Brennan said that if they don't get $75 billion worth of funding, uh, they will run out of cash by the end of the fiscal year. Uh, the, the, the CARES Act provided a $10 billion loan to the post office uh, with strings attached, and the loan is being administered by the Treasury Department, which has made no bones of of its displeasure with how the Postal Service operates. Uh, That has also led to concerns that the Trump administration wants to do a, basically a private sector overhaul of USPS. Uh, The the House of Representatives in the HEROES Act um, authorized $25 billion over three years Uh, I believe in forgivable loans, but that I am not sure about, unfortunately. 
Uh, clearly, the House wants to be more generous with the Postal Service than the White House does. Uh, the Senate actually wanted to give more money in the CARES Act to the Post Office than than that than it actually got. Uh, but you know, that President Trump and Secretary of Tre- Treasury Mnuchin drew lines in the sand and said, in effect, ten billion dollars in a, in a loan with, with covenants attached is the best you're going to get. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it, it's clearly the postal service is losing money hand over fist and they face secular challenges. Again, not only in terms of the loss of first class mail and marketing mail to digitalization, but again, going back to the perspective loss over time, of the parcel traffic that used to go into its network, last mile network. I mean, FedEx has already said that all of that business will go away. Amazon, if you believe the the numbers, has dramatically reduced the amount of parcels attenders to the post office. Uh, UPS is under tremendous pressure from its unions to end the relationship with the post office and give that last mile traffic to Teamster drivers. Um, you know, the, you can't replace the, the volume tendered by those three companies. I, post office can do what it's capable of doing in terms of attracting more merchant traffic um, and even more consolidator traffic. These are companies that aggregate parcels from small to mid-sized businesses and then dump them into the postal network. But to lose the majority of the parcel business from those three companies would be a massive hole that I don't know if the Postal Service could dig itself out from. Right. And then, of course, at the same time, it still has the mandate to deliver the things that it does deliver to every house in America. And there really isn't anything, as you pointed out, to kind of fill that hole. But that mandate will exist. Well, that may or may not happen, John. Uh, depending on how reforms go, there may be changes to the universal service mandate. I would not guarantee that the universal service mandate, as it's currently structured, will stay in place forever. Right, but we also have the fact that as a political issue, Polls show the Postal Service for all the complaining and all the moaning about uh, I put I get lost in the mail and it takes forever to get here. The fact is it does it does carry with it a very high support rating with the, with the American people. So taking the Postal Service on in a presidential election year, it just doesn't sound like smart politics to me. The Postal Service was created to bind the nation together through uniform and universal communication. It was not created to be a profit-making entity. It was created to basically support the country. And to this day, you know, people are accustomed to putting a 50-some-odd-cent stamp on a letter and mailing it 2,300 miles with the accurate presumption that it will get there on time. Yeah, somebody somebody had a tweet recently I saw that I just thought it was great. Um, they said, uh, the Postal Service amazes me. Uh, I'll give you 55 cents 
and uh, here, take this letter and deliver 3,000 miles within a couple of days. <laughs> he summed that up. And uh, that really that really is pretty amazing. At, at the end of the day, that's still pretty amazing to me. No other postal system in the world comes close. And it is really a tribute to the Postal Service's ability to efficiently process and deliver first class and marketing mail. They are extremely efficient at that. The problem is that business, as you know, as everyone knows, is being digitalized away. The future of the Postal Service is parcel, and they know that. The problem is parcel is more labor intensive, um, and it takes up more room in a vehicle than letters do. And well, well, does the Postal Service – I mean, let's go back to your argument about losing business to Amazon, um, UPS, FedEx, et cetera. Are there any inherent advantages – that the postal service has over those other entities. I mean, we, you know, we think of them like, oh, they're, you know, they're, they're like a sheep going to slaughter. But maybe they've they've got a lot of infrastructure. They've got they've got buildings. They've got post offices all over the place. They're already going in a lot of houses. Um, do they bring to the table something that the others can't match? Cost, price. They are still, in many respects, the cheapest way to get parcels from A to B. Um, the priority mail service, which is end to end that the USPS handles is, is extremely well run and has been, um, an excellent product for a long time. Parcel select, um, the, the last mile postal injection business that you described has been a big winner. And because it is dirt cheap to, for merchants and for the carriers who are tendering the, the parcels to get the goods into the hands of consumers. Um, that's what is so dangerous about President Trump's declaration that he won't sign any relief bill unless the post office quadruples parcel rates. Well, if they quadruple parcel rates, Amazon will take a ton of the business away. Companies that would normally use the post office because of the low rates will now find that rates between UPS, FedEx, and the post office have narrowed to the point that it makes sense to use UPS and FedEx. That would be an absolute disaster for the post office. And keep in mind, the post office has raised its parcel select rates for the last two to three years. And in some one year, they raised it high single digit to low double digit amounts. It's not as if the post office is sitting there and, and not adjusting their prices to reflect the growth in demand for the product. And there are ways to reform the post office, but quadrupling prices to basically result in uh, you know, millions of parcels fleeing away from the post office is not the, it, it makes no sense. Is it simplistic? I, I want to be careful here. I, you keep you keep reading about the the pre-funding obligations on the uh, on retirement, and it's often cited as like the reason why the post service is in trouble. Uh, I'm sure things are a little more complex than that. How big a problem is the pre-funding requirement? 
as I, as we talked about at the beginning, it does a, a lot to resolve the Postal Service's financial problems. It's a significant boulder on their back. But it will not change the way the Postal Service needs to compete in, in 21st century commerce. Uh, it may give them some flexibility, financial flexibility, which leads to operational flexibility. Uh, but the post office faces, an, in my view, an existential crisis because of the prospective diversion of millions and millions of parcels to companies that have for years relied on them. And I mean, I'm, uh, UPS, Amazon, and FedEx. If those companies take the last mile business away, uh, I mean, most of it away, that becomes a very difficult hole for USPS to dig itself out of. Well, we'll be watching, and I know that Mark will be watching. If you want to see Mark's coverage and reads Mark, read Mark's coverage, please tune into FreightWaves.com uh, all the time. Mark will be writing about this issue a lot, particularly as we head toward a possible showdown on September 30th. Uh, you've been listening to Drilling Deep. Drilling Deep is a member of the FreightCast family of podcasts from FreightWaves. We are on all of the major podcast platforms. Uh, Amazon, uh, Spotify, you name it. Mark, I, I think I went into that spiel without thanking you for joining me today. Yeah, it was my pleasure, John. Thank you. Anyway, we want to thank you, too, for listening to Drilling Deep. We'll be back again. I'm John Kingston. Thanks for listening.